0: And thanks for joining us now for KVC Arts, arts and entertainment, as well as the people and places providing it. I'm David Fleming. On this edition of the program, I'm speaking with guitarist Ray Russell. Think of him as part of England's Wrecking Crew, a group of A-list players who come in and improve upon and see realized any given musical situation. Many of his nearly 20 albums under his own name sit quite comfortably in a jazz fusion library. He also has numerous film and TV scoring credits and played on quite a few James Bond themes. We'll hear about that in just a bit. But going into it, Ray came to Riverside almost exactly one year ago to help celebrate Barth guitars out of Riverside, as well as Riverside's House of Note. So, borrowing briefly from the conversation from one year ago, let's start by talking about the Bartel fretless guitar which was given to you by George Harrison, though it seems John Lennon had it for a while.
1: It's a strange story. I I must admit that I'm not quite sure which way around it started, but Bartell were two guys, as you know, Ted Pickles, wasn't it, and Paul Bart. And so, you know, I think back to those times when I was a kid, you know, and they were doing that stuff, and I was so clueless of what was going on. And I think of those guys inventing things, you know, it's so great. But that guitar, George saw somebody playing it at a studio, and the person that was working as PR for, um, for the Bartel Company got one to him because he liked it. And my take on it, it sort of got delivered to his house in Blue Jay Way, the street, which is at in Hollywood. Blue Jay Way. I think that's how the song came about, when he was waiting for his. um Yeah, just waiting his for his friend to, come to show up. Yeah, <laughs> on the flight, and they were late, and so he wrote that. It's a mark of a great songsmith, I would say. Mm-hmm. Turning your friends into a song when they're late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic, isn't it? But he, he got it over there. I mean, it's always been a bit of an anomaly, the guitar. As you know, I mean, it was '85 when I got it. When I did the handmade films, I knew Ray Cooper very well. Ray and I have been mates for a long time. And he said, "Well, you should come play with George and do the handmade films." He just started, and so I started doing all of those. And we met, you know, on the sessions. We were doing this thing called Water. Michael Kane was leading mm. it, and they were actually having a great time in the West Indies and doing a lot of tracks. But we also had to do some underscore and stuff and other tracks. So. I didn't get to go out there. nor did a few other people. We stayed here doing the music, and um, he brought us over. He said, I don't know if this is any good, but I just wondered if you could get anything out of it. And, you know, I felt this guitar. I thought, well, oh, this is going to be interesting. So I just played a few things. It sounded remarkably like it comes together for some reason. <laughs> and I played the stuff, and, you know, he said, you know, you're obviously getting more out of it than I am. You might as well have it. <laughs> and that was it. Wow. I, I said, well, are you sure? He said, yeah, take it, man. Good. And he's just, you know, he's just a normal guy. Um, If you met him on a session or a gig and he wasn't in the Beatles, then it'd be, hi, man, how you doing? You know, fine, fine. Just like a very talented musician, really. I think he's underestimated actually how good he is.
0: I think a he number of to, people have said that.
1: Yeah, he had to fit in a lot of stuff, you know. And with Beatles, it, wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but I'm sure he had a lot of ideas and had to wait a long time, before, you know.
0: Well, they had to wait had for, for the White Album for the really cool playing, so...
1: <laughs> yeah, well, totally, totally, he was there. So, anyway, after, yeah, after, I did play it. I played it a bit, but, you know, there seems to be musicians or... Collectors really that like to hang their stuff up and get stuff of the eras and talk about the like historians, you know, or curators. And there's musicians that just pick the thing up and play it, you know, and are not so worried about if it's made in '76 or '77, which is, I'm suppose I'm in that crowd, mm. <clears throat> which is both good and bad in a way. But you know, <laughs> so I had this thing and the guitar, and then when Paul saw it, said, "What is that?" He suddenly went over to it. The more I think about it, the more it was like I felt like. Something was forcing him over there, you know, like a force field, to go and see it because it wasn't particularly out and on show. It was just for the other guitars. He just picked it up. And through Paul, really, that, you know, he found out so much about it and wrote the book.
0: Now you're talking about Paul Brett. This is the author of Finding Fretless, the story of George Harrison's mad guitar. Uh, You wrote one of the forewords to that. And since it was uh, your conversation with Paul which spurred on this book, how did you and Paul even come to know one another?
1: Uh, Well, Paul does a lot of charity work, and he's involved in a thing called Star Cards. You kind of just have your pictures taken with a card and you autograph it. It does a lot of work for children's hospitals. You know, Paul knows everybody. He's amazing. And he just gets in, I mean, apart from musicians, you know, like famous guys. I mean, he gets into tennis, F1. They've all got pictures taken by Paul, Star Cards, that they auction up the pictures for charity. And that's how we got involved. He said, do you want to do one? And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be great nice so he came around took my picture i mean he was coming around to do it again for another bout of stuff you know uh, some more auctions and then he saw the guitar <laughs> gotcha <Wow. laughs> and then he said you know the antique roadshow is happening in the castle down the road you should come down anyway and i was like you know i never thought of it in terms of value yeah because it was just something that george gave to me i phoned up there was no answer and i felt quite good i thought oh good I won't have to go through all that. <laughs> then suddenly, somebody picked up the phone after a couple of minutes, you know, and said, <laughs> just like, how, they were out of breath, just like, yeah, said, hello, hello. So I said, look, I don't know if you'd be interested, but I've got this guitar George Harrison gave me. He said, oh, well, we don't know, we are quite full up. So she said, I'll ask the director. That was the end of that conversation. I thought, okay, well, that's fine. I think it was under two minutes, the phone rang. And it was the director he said, you, you've got what? <laughs> and I said, I've got it. He said, by George Harrison, that was all right, wasn't it? That was, I could feel the tension, you know. It was, he needed a drink after that call, you know. He mm-hmm. was <laughs> And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, no, bring it down. We'll see you at nine o'clock tomorrow, you know. So I phoned Paul. I said, you're taking me down here. You're my chauffeur. You can, you can drive <laughs> me down there. <laughs> so anyway, so we stood in line. thought, oh, I better stand here. Suddenly, there's these two big guys about seven foot tall came, you know, with the earphones in <laughs> yeah. and the whole thing. And it was obviously security. And I said, excuse me, sir, I think you should be <laughs> in this part of the castle. And I walked in, of course, it's the presenters, it's all the stars, you know. Ah. So he valued it at nearly, you know, about 400000 Had that been like the Telecaster or the Natural Wood Gretsch, mm-hmm. I would have never sold it. Right. Because that's the guitar that he loved and... Played and I would have never done that to George. But as it was a thing that that he never played much, I didn't feel too bad. But in the end, I was kind of forced to sell it because everybody knew I had it. You know, the next morning I'm walking the dog and the simply say, "Hey, you're the guy with the guitar worth half mm. a million quid, aren't you?" I'm thinking, "What are they just going to queue up in the limos waiting for us to go out and come in?" You know, it was a it, it felt like that. You know, so now I thought, you know what? I got phoned up by nearly every auction house in London. Eventually, I put it with Bonhams because they were there at the time. It got auctioned, and somebody in America bought it for less than that. It was about 180 it went for. And, you know, I'm sure it's hanging up on the wall somewhere with a lot of memorabilia, you know, that's the Beatles. But right. Anyway, so it went. And I, I kind of did shed a tear, but I felt relieved, actually, I also thought, well, someone's going to get more joy out of that in a way, and I've had it mm. for, for that. So it's passed on and it's nice. But I mean, I've got some other treasures of George that uh, he's given me that I would never let go. They're not as big as a guitar, but, you know, they're, they're more keepsakes than anything, which I mean, they mean more to me, really.
0: Oh, sure. Most certainly. Here's where I asked you to start referencing things from a little over 50 years ago, some as recent as 30 or 40 years ago. But we mentioned this earlier. I mean, I just said it as a side comment, the James Bond themes. I believe that you've cited your first professional gig as with John Barry, and this could be the John Barry Seven or the John Barry Orchestra. That would certainly place you on a number of James Bond themes that people would have heard you on without knowing your name.
1: Yeah, I've been on Seven. The man with the golden gun, I think, was the first one. Yeah, it's (laughs) the way my professional life started, it's just, you know, it's something else, really. Back in those days when you forget some answer phones, forget iPhones, computers, and the whole thing, you know, you just have to make a call. But people were far more accessible then. I mean, I got that gig. I was working, doing this sort of dead-end job I didn't want to do. There was a thing in a magazine called Melody Maker, and that was quite dramatic. the mag for guys, and the more pop guys had a magazine called The NME, which became The Enemy. <laughs> Just a little quip, you know. Nice. But anyway, what happened was that the original guitar player with John was Vic Flick, and Vic decided he wanted to do other things. And this is really early days. I mean, they'd done, I think, about two or three films, and he decided to go and actually go to America. He still lives just outside Las Vegas. So he said, they were looking for another guitar player. Well, when you think about that time, going back to that time, you know, it would never be like that. The phone number was in the paper. And, you know, that just doesn't happen anymore. So I phoned it up, being all kind of young and thinking, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this. So I phoned up and I got an audition for the following week because they were away. And in that week, I had to plead with my parents who were very, very good because they bought me my first guitar side. You know, I owe it to them. And they bought me four albums of John Barry, of the Bond stuff, you know, obviously Dr. No and the other things he was doing, like I think Jukebox Jury and the pop stuff, you know. It was all on album. By the way, I couldn't read a note. Yeah. So the whole thing was I just learned everything, everything I could, and we got to this audition, and the place was closed when it was supposed to be open, and we sort of, kind of broke into it in a very, very orderly light fashion.
0: Broke <laughs> in orderly. We,
1: yes, we broke in nicely. <laughs> so our sentences were less. No, we bro- <laughs> it's crazy. And the tenor player, who was the tallest, climbed over the kind of little ticket area where there was no one, but there was a plug. And there we were in a North London cinema, which we'd broken into. You look outside, there was traffic going past, it was raining. And there was me with a guitar and amp, and six other guys. And they had the music, and they set up a music stand. And then the first thing they put on was James Bond theme, and in brackets, Doctor No. And they started singing the tune along. Da-da-da-da, like this, you know? Yeah. And I started playing it. I did that, and I did another couple, which I knew. I was just reading the titles. Couldn't read a note of the music. And he stopped me after the third one. He said, you're good, aren't you? <laughs> so I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't no. mean to say, you know. I was so nervous. Yeah. Anyway, there was a phone there. You know, those days, nothing was locked, you know. Got on the phone. <laughs> the old-fashioned phone said, hey, John, this guy's good. We should get him. He said, where would you live? I said, oh, down the road. He said, well, I'll take you down the road because you're going to have to go on this tour tomorrow. <laughs> wow. I walked in and I said to my mum, dad, like, I'm really sorry about this. <laughs> I we going to go, oh, no, that's great. That's great. You know, they, I mean, they said that. They were, they were obviously really worried. But anyway, these guys were all older than me. And they were very gracious and they took care of me. I mean, I was 18. You know? 18, okay. And these guys were like, you know, 30. And so I was very lucky. I could have fallen into a bit of vipers, you know. <laughs> but I managed to stay with some gentlemen and they were very good and I grew up within that week I suddenly grew up. Wow. But it was great. And anyway, I there's two codes to this okay. which is kind of funny. Cool. One is I'm lying in bed one night on tour somewhere, you know, up in the north of England, thinking, Oh, yeah, that was great and then the thought suddenly occurred to me that my record player might not have been totally in pitch. Uh. Because they weren't the old ones, right? <laughs> they <laughs> they used half a valve, you know, and it could have been like everything could have been in F and I would have been sunk anyway. So that oh, wow. luckily that was okay. <laughs> so I didn't have to worry about that. But, but, you know, you know what I mean? Just that terrible pain. Think, my God. And the other code was we had a rehearsal to learn some new stuff. And the guy put the music out, and it was really hard. And he looked over to me, you know, felt silent. And, you know, he said, you can't read, can you? Mm. I said, look, I'm really sorry, I can't, He said, oh, don't worry, we'll teach you. And every day then, in the van, I had this old acoustic guitar. I had to take it in the van, and I had to sit in the middle kind of, you know, seating. And the bass player, Dave Richmond, got out this reading book. And I used to have to have my reading lesson from... Being picked up to the gig, you know, I had like a four hour reading lesson every day. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> that was incredible. And I was pretty good after about three or four months, got the idea of it, you know, so it was okay. And actually, funny enough, uh, another guy, which you probably know the name of, he's not with us anymore, but Tony Ashton. Yeah, wow. Ashton Gardner and Dyke and one of those guys. I mean, he was a fantastic organ player. He joined the band for a while, he couldn't read either. <laughs> and we used to play Rude 66. Oh, that nice. Really old, and nice. Yeah. I don't know who wrote that, Neil Hefti. Did, was it Neil Hefti? Was it? Neil Hefty Bobby, Bobby Troop. Right, right. Oh, great. Yeah, that's it. And it was straight, and, and there's a middle bit where there's a kind of flutey thing, which was arranged to be played on piano. And he got the chords. were great, what he was playing. He got the inversions, like, really nice. And it was just kind of suddenly got very new agey. Had we invented the term then? It could have been like nice. new agey because it was just like these big floaty chords, and everyone was like waiting for something to happen, <laughs> and <laughs> nothing did because <laughs> he wasn't reading the music. That was funny.
0: That's really, really <laughs> funny.
1: Yeah, had that been invented, the term somebody would have come up and say, "Hey, that sounds very new agey, guys."
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is too yeah, funny.
1: Yeah, so it was his turn to some to say, "You can't read, can you?" <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>
0: You're listening to KVCR at some David Fleming in conversation with guitarist Ray Russell. More just ahead, bands and other projects, and much more, of course, along with some film work. More on Ray at rayrussell.uk.co. And more music and conversation just ahead. Marketing a business or nonprofit can be a challenge, and decision makers are hard to reach. When it comes to connecting your message with the right audience, you can count on KVCR. Learn how to get your message heard where it matters most. Visit kvcrnews.org/slash-underwriting. Back now with KVCR. It's, I'm David Fleming in conversation with guitarist Ray Russell. Ray was in the region about a year ago, celebrating Barth guitars and the rich history here in the Inland Empire now hearing about his incredible career and some really cool film work I wasn't aware of until we spoke. Somewhere you referenced this, and some of this stuff I'm reading, and some of these, I listened to one of your old lectures that you gave. This actually came from the foreword to Paul Brett's book, that one of your favorite sessions would be when you were recording some of the film scores with George Harrison's company. We mentioned this earlier, Handmade Films. And most notably yeah. for the listener, that you had played on Time Bandits, and uh, we, we yeah. forgive George for that movie, but, uh, but most notably, The Life of Brian, Oh, you were, life of Brian? Yeah. Any so any time we heard guitar in the life of Brian, w- w- was this you?
1: Yeah. Huh. And and also, you know what? One of my favorites is which I did. What? And and John Williams, the guitar player, played the um, you know the um, the uh, classical guitar on, on there. But I, I did all the. Um, the stuff, That oh, was the fish called Wanda. Okay. Oh, really? Oh, wow! You ever
0: that? I watch that movie every probably four months or so. so yeah, no, I know. Really? That. Yeah, and I'll be watching it with a different ear, so to speak. Oh, wow! That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow, I yeah. will have to check that out. And, <laughs> and now some of these sessions that you were in, now moving away from Monty Python, because I'm just looking at various sessions, and I'm not sure if these were the sessions with John Barry and all that. But sometime in your career, you had John McLaughlin and Jimmy Page just either in the next room or, or maybe on the next track.
1: The John McLaughlin and Jimmy Page, what happened was I left John Barry after, I don't know, a couple of years, only because of the idea of a John Barry 7 kind of folded, it sort of just went away, so gotcha. there wasn't much work. And I joined Georgie you Fame and the Blue Flames, and hmm. well, you know that was a great, a great introduction, R&B, you know, yeah. the original R&B, you know. Funky band, I mean, just amazing. And we played with a lot of people, you yeah, like the Butterfield Blues Band. Oh, cool. You know, you know, Paul Butterfield? Yeah. Fantastic guy, I mean, it's great. And, uh, you know, it's like the four tops. Because, you know, in that time in England, a lot of people would come over and tour. It was big news, and they were filling everything up. So that was great, yeah, with Georgie. Anyway, just before that, I was doing a couple of sessions, sort of interim, if you like. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. doing many, but people would ask me, and I arrived at this studio called Lansdown Studios, which was originally the famous person to come out of there was Joe Meek. Oh wow! Really? He used to work there as a tape op, oh, you know, really? an engineer. Oh Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was a block of flats, and it was an old swimming pool that was converted into a studio. It's very, very wow. strange. Wow. Anyway, it's a good studio, but so Jimmy Page, John McLaughlin were there, and me, three guitars, and <laughs> it was very funny because Jimmy said, "I'm a bit fed up with this session," and he said I... I think I'm going to form a band and call it something like Led Zeppelin. (laughs) (laughs) And Johnny said, I'm thinking of going to do that audition with Miles Davis. Wow. Talk about, you know, where things start from, origins. And so he said to me, do you want to join George's band? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. So he went across the road to the two um, guys who were shady. They used to run a lot of the West End. And they were really, really nice guys, though. They were very nice to me. So I can't say if the story's all true about the gangland thing, but, you know, they were ever so nice to me. And they said, Do you want to do this? Yeah, I said, Yeah, that's it. It's fine. And that was it. Then I was on the road with Georgie. And that was a great experience. And these guys who ran the West End, or that part of the West End anyway, every Friday they would put up what you were supposed to be, you know, paid, all in cash, on this desk. Hmm? And you all line up and take your money all in cash. And they give it to you, you know, without fail, four o'clock every Friday afternoon. Fantastic.
0: (laughs) That's such a different way of approaching everything for this, down to the payment of the band. Wow. Yeah. (laughs)
1: It was great, yeah, I played with a lot of people. I mean, those tours just were partly doing his spot, part, partly backing the American artists, and it was brilliant, you know, it's so much about R&B and, and jazz, I mean, you yeah. know, because there was a lot of people that played jazz, and I mean, that really started me off on playing, what I call it, jazz, you know, but, you know, play that, and of course, being guitar orientated, it was kind of all mixed up, you know.
0: And yet it was probably a few years prior that there was the Ray Russell Quartet and you had an incredible take on Footprints among so many other things on that album. Yeah. Th- that would be a few years before all that, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that you know, I was trying to think back and the actual source of how that happened, and I think it was before I did join John Barry, a guy was very into West Coast blues, you know, he loved mm-hmm. Wes Montgomery. and. Jimmy Smith. And, oh, sure. And he always used to play this stuff. He had a little record player, and he used to play this stuff in his break time. And I, you know, I sort of got into it and bought a Jimmy Smith record and, and stuff. And of course, all the guys in John Barry were all, you know, were really good improvisers. Yeah. So they know all these tunes, you know, all the old Charlie Parker tunes. So, you know, I got a schooling in this completely different world that I was supposed to be in because the guys were so wide, and they, you know... But I kind of wanted to try stuff that was quite out there and had quite a long association with drama, Alan Rushton and and the guys, and we just got together and played stuff that was, you know, quite different, and it it became, you know, obviously um, a lot of people liked it, and there were a few people doing it, but we were trying to give it the kind of, I don't know, a a warmer edge than say the European free jazz I mean, you know, I say that, I don't say that, because they were playing great stuff, but, you know, it was just, I mean, the BBC had quite a, a lot of Room for jazz club broadcasts, and so we did that. And then that person called David Howes of CBS, he was great, really. He just approached me and he said, You know, I'm setting this up this label called Realm Jazz. Would you do um, three albums? And I said, Yeah, I'd love to. And then it was very strange, really, because I did Turned Circle, which is the first one, which was Footprints is on, mm-hmm. and then I did Dragon Hill, which I really like a couple of tunes on that. I re- you know, and in the middle of this, he said, you know, the Blood, Sweat and Tears band. So it's doing really well. Have you ever thought about forming a band like that? And I said, well, it's quite a big ask because it's quite a lot of logistics involved. And he said, do you mean could you do an album? So, you know, this band called Rock Workshop. Alex, are you, did you hear of Alex Harvey?
0: Yes, I know that. You know, yeah, well, he was,
1: he was in the band. Without a doubt.
0: So this would be around the time of either your band Mouse or maybe up to your album Ready or Not? It sounds like this is the kind of music you're heading toward.
1: Yeah, Ready or Not was after... Ready or Not was another turn, really. I mean, Mouse was near, I think, live at the ICA, and then there was Secret Asylum, but Ready or Not was one of the main changes where it became more fusion. Yeah. That that sort of made the change into fusion more.
0: You know, and I have to say that with my fusion background, Ready or Not is actually one of my favorite albums of all time, uh, no matter what genre. That's just one that, and I don't have access to it anymore. That stayed back in Kentucky at the other station. But just one question, if you don't mind on that one. It's a mostly instrumental album, though with a, a few tracks with just belted out lyrics and a take on living for the city. I just, my God. I encountered this with Andy Timmons recently, with his most recent release, Electric Truth. It's, again, mostly instrumental, though with two songs thrown in. And the thing is, they made sense to be there, though I had it in my mindset to be getting into something instrumental. So, same thing with Ready or Not. My question is, I suppose, was this already an instrumental album then you felt you needed to have some songs on it as well? Or was this a case of, as you were developing the album, Some tunes ended up with lyrics and others not, as they were being written for the album.
1: Yeah, we always had songs in mind, too. The idea of Ready or Not was the producer, Kathleen Kay. I mean, it was originally by a record company called DJM, and they bought, funny enough, all Northern songs, you know, so they (laughs) just bought the Beatles catalog. But they wanted to put it out there, you know, like a album. But They did want to try and get something in the charts. Ah, there it is. So the idea was that we did, you know, the clapping song. Which did go in, and I tell you what's happened to that. I mean, the Little lever version is fantastic. Yeah. But I've noticed a lot of people that are sampling use our version. Oh, wow. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe the claps are more prominent, maybe there's more to kind of loop on it. But, yeah, you know, sometimes I get some rotors and it's like from the clapping song. Wow. And it's a sample,
0: yeah. I don't know if I would have expected on that one. And not to say one shines over the other, but that's just a really cool side note. And you actually get a check for a little bit every so often for that one. Yeah. Wow, yeah. nice. It's not
1: nothing amazing, but it's just interesting that people would sample that, you know, and not the Lever one, which I was like, well, it was, you know, it was another take on it. I mean, there was a brass section on it, and obviously there's probably more to take. Or, to, you know, cut downs and things, you know, to take off of there. But, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, that was really the single, Living for the City, was the second single. I mean, the, actually, the clapping song did get in the low 20s. It did, okay. it did something. Nice. And then DJM decided to sell all the Beatles catalog to Michael Jackson. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and t- didn't sort of really want to know about anything else, so, um, you know, see you, bye. bye <laughs>
0: uh, Wow. And
1: then, you know, I mean, my relationship with Simon Phillips. Yes. Was started with. We started. I don't know if you know this. I think I've got a copy of all this stuff, so I can let you have it. But we had a band. Well, a lady called Anne Odell asked us to be in a band called Chopin. Okay. Do you know about Chopin? No, oh, I don't
0: know about Chopin uh, beyond the composer.
1: So, 1975, it was called Grand Slam and I had a picture of a piano blowing up. There's some really good musicians in that band. I mean, it's fantastic. A great, great band. We did that for a couple of years. It took a lot of attention, you know, we used to do a hell of a lot of universities with it, and that was when Simon and I were really starting to work together doing fusion stuff, and that's when, you know, after that we did Symbiosis, Mm -hmm. which was when he moved to America to play with Toto.
0: That's when I first encountered Simon Phillips. I knew mm -hmm. him as one of the few people who could step in for Jeff Porcaro after he passed away. And of course, I know there's so much more to him than that, and so I was excited to see that the two of you had a history. It's been Conversation with guitarist Ray Russell for this edition of KVC Arts. Hearing about quite a varied career and next week focusing on his most recent release at the time of this conversation, one called Fluid Architecture. More on Ray at rayrussell.uk.co. And I knew of Ray because of my background and penchant for jazz fusion. I met him thanks to an event in Riverside celebrating the history of Barth guitars and more and, of course, Paul Brett's book, Finding Fretless, the story of George Harrison's mad guitar, which was in Ray's possession for quite some time. More on the book, which includes a foreword by Ray, at findingfretless.com. And with that, we wrap up another edition of KVC Arts Thanks again to Ray Russell, as well as Paul Brett. And here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vosquez, Rick Dulac, Shereen Awad, and Layla Boyd. Many past KVC Arts can be found through iTunes, NPR One, Google Podcasts and Spotify, and most past shows are kvcrnews.org arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks especially to you for listening and for your support, which you can do any time of the year. Go to kvcrnews.org support. And thanks again.